Welcome to Carbon Times. As the global drive towards creating a more sustainable world for us all continues to gain pace, our goal is to create interesting content where we will speak to people from across all sectors on what can drive sustainability in everything that we do. We are inviting interesting guests along to talk to us about their experiences and what they are doing to share knowledge, experience, innovation and ambitions. As ever, we want to get everybody talking. We all have a responsibility to create a more sustainable world. Tens of millions of homes in the UK were built with lower energy efficiency standards. There are still so many homes with poor level of insulation, with a lack of draft proofing, which causes a lot of discomfort for residents, which then drives them to turn up the heating. Research shows that up to 15% of a home's heat loss can be caused by air bricks, traditional air vents. Uh, but in the same time, if residents block these air vents permanently, it can cause damp and condensation, risking their health. We developed AIRX, a smart ventilation control. Control. It's essentially an intelligent air brick that uses sensors to monitor and analyze temperature, humidity and air quality in the home. So it opens to reduce humidity levels and it shuts to reduce heat loss in the home. Welcome back to the Carbon Times podcast. With around 29 million homes in the UK requiring some level of retrofitting to make them more efficient, to achieve the UK standards and in line with the global drive to create a more sustainable future, finding cost-effective solutions is key. There is no one solution that can solve everything. It will take a mix of cost-effective proven solutions to get housing in the UK to where it needs to be. On that point, we are delighted to be joined by Agnes from Airex, who have a product aimed at doing just that. Welcome, Agnes. Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks for having me, Paul. So I'm Agnes Tucker. I'm the founder and CEO of Airex. We are a London-based climate tech company with the mission to fight fuel poverty and climate change. Excellent. So tell us a little bit about your background, Agnes, like where do you come from? Why this field of interest in terms of, you know, those two points that you mentioned there around fuel poverty and tackling climate change? Absolutely. So my background is in low energy buildings design, and I spent the last 10 years working within the energy efficiency industry. I'm also a certified passive house consultant, which is looking at nearly zero energy buildings. So part of this experience of working within this energy efficiency sector was the lead the delivery of a few tens of thousands of fuel poverty assessments in vulnerable communities. So I personally visited over 2,000 homes in the most socially deprived areas of London. And I found it incredibly shocking that fuel poverty still exists in the 21st century in one of the most developed countries in the world where it should have been eradicated ages ago. And of course, it's needless to say that the UK has one of the oldest housing stock in Europe. It's very aesthetically pleasing with all the Victorian and Georgian buildings, but it comes with a price because these homes are extremely energy efficient to run. And so it's costing owners and tenants a fortune to heat, and it's also emitting a huge amount of carbon. So within the UK, heating our homes are contributing to about one quarter of the country's overall carbon emission. But there is no easy solution to solve this problem. And 
as you mentioned, there is no one single silver bullet. But what we experienced is on this market is that on one end of the spectrum, there are products such as cavity wall insulation or loft insulation that are extremely efficient. So they achieve good savings with little upfront cost. But the market for these products are nearly saturated. So there's hardly any more uninsulated lofts in the country. But on the other end of the spectrum, there are products such as solid wall insulation, which will become necessary in order to reach net zero, but it has a long payback time. So it could be decades while it's paying back. So that's preventing market uptake. And so there is this issue whereby homeowners and landlords are struggling to find cost-effective and quick payback solutions. And this is where we are coming in. So it sounds like the journey has really been driven from your experiences there around fuel poverty. I mean, you mentioned, you know, how shocking it was. Do you know any of the statistics around it in terms of the number of people in London who are in fuel poverty? Not in London, but country-wise, it's an extremely shocking figure. So it used to be about 2 million people living in the UK in fuel poverty. But now with the energy crisis spiking, that number is nearly 6, 7 million. So that's around 10% of the population, which is incredibly sad. And yes, I think the, the, so the original target for the UK government was to fully eradicate fuel poverty by 2012. So not only we missed this deadline, but if anything, it's it's just accelerated even more with, with the energy crisis that we're currently experiencing. Yeah, definitely. Right. So I guess this would be a good time then to tell us about the product itself then. What is Airex and what should our listeners know about it? Yeah, absolutely. So basically, we developed a smart air brick solution. So we looked into a completely overlooked area within the home, which is air bricks. If you're not familiar with air bricks, these are bricks with holes with them to provide some natural airflow to prevent dampness. But the issue with them is that they are slightly overventilating our homes because of the uncontrolled airflow. So Because of that effect, it means about 15% of a home's heat loss can be caused by these air bricks. So it's a seemingly small problem, but at a UK level, it could be about three billion pounds a year energy wasted. But at the same time, when occupants are blocking these air vents permanently to cut out cold drafts, then it can cause dampness, which is then risking people's health. So we have this conflicting issue of energy efficiency on one hand and ventilation requirements on the other hand, which needs to be balanced. And that's exactly what we are doing with Airx. We developed a smart air brick solution that is basically the like-for-like replacement of existing air bricks. It has inbuilt sensors, so it could monitor the environmental conditions, for example, temperature, humidity, and some aspects of air quality. And it controls the airflow through finding the optimum time meant to ventilate or not. So it seems fairly simple, but the reality is that it operates in a quite complex environment and you don't want to rely on occupants' behavior. So the system does it automatically for you as a fit and forget solution. So it reduces the heat demand, but without causing any unintended consequences like damp buildup. Really good point around the buildup of damp, especially. I'm an EHO by trade. So I used to go around people's houses when they had problems with damp and mold. And the amount of times that you would go to, you know, an older built house in the UK, I worked in Luton and St Albans, the same problem existed in both that you go into the tenant's home and they'd blocked up all the air bricks. So 
that's why they had damp in the wet, you know, in the kitchen and in the bathrooms in all those properties. But, you know, trying to get them to understand that you can't do that, but then they don't like the draft. So it's always a conflict. I can see something like your product, like you said, it automates the process and it's kind of a leave and forget thing, automates the behavior in one way or another. I can't imagine you've had many incidents of people trying to stop it from working, have you? Yes. So once it's recognized that it's entirely fit and forget and they don't need to worry about it, it does its job, then know that there isn't any interference. Are there monetary savings in a real term example that you're able to provide? Because one of the challenges, I guess, with something like your product is getting it into the private rented sector. Yes, absolutely. So, and that's a really good point on the monetary savings because the main driver in a private sector would be the energy savings rather than the environmental credentials. That's just slightly secondary. So the average savings on an average so, so we like to pick like a three-bedroom semi-detached house that is very, very typical, based in the middle of the UK. So based on a robust validation that we did, the average savings is about £120 a year for a gas heated home and over £400 a year for an electrically heated home. So this is calculated based on today's energy prices, hence it's so high. So non-negligible, and therefore the payback could be quite quick, one or two years, and it pays back. So your previous professional background has obviously given you a lot of insight into the particular challenges that the product seeks to overcome. Because one of the problems with modern efficient design is always overheating because of ventilation issues. Is this something that assists with that modern, very insulated, very kind of tight, airtight design? At the moment, we are very much looking at the existing housing stock and the much more older leak here. That's where there is a lot to do in terms of improving the energy efficiency. So there is, social landlords has this legal mandate to improve their EPC rating to C level by 2030, which is quite a tight deadline and they don't really know how to achieve that in a, in a cost-effective way. So definitely the existing homes and older homes is the primary market, but with slight modifications, that's the next step would be to also tackle the overheating of the area. So because of the background in, in energy efficiency, there's just also where it really came from, the actual airbag specific idea is that we have been working and I was fortunate to meet a very exciting academic researcher, uh, Dr. Sophie Palsmakers, who conducted an entire five years research project on this very specific subject. So heat loss through suspended ground floor. It's a pretty niche area and clearly she is a world expert in this subject. So she was the one who first identified that there is a really high level of heat loss caused by air bricks in homes. And then we applied jointly to an Innovate UK R&D funding back in 2016, which allowed us to build the first prototypes and test the hypothesis. So essentially at the back end of our academic research. It's a really interesting and amazing journey that you've been on, even those, you know, those particular aspects were building off the back of that research. It's a really interesting way of bringing a product to the world, I guess, to some point. What's your primary audience, I guess, would be a good way of describing what you're doing? Absolutely. So we have made the conscious decision to focus on the social housing providers primarily. So local authorities and housing associations and their Adoption in new technologies to reduce emissions is the number one metric that we're looking at. And this adoption level 
I would say it very much varies because we can see some very much forward-thinking organizations who are not afraid to try out new things. And certainly within the public sector, there is a lot of hesitation to adopt innovation. So, but the other hand, there, there is this pressure that is building up on social housing providers because not only the EPC targets that I mentioned that they have to achieve, but local authorities, almost all the local authorities have announced climate emergency quite recently. But it's really rare that somebody within the organization have a full understanding on how to act on it. So it is quite confusing, understandably. It's also a bit of a new area for many working within the public housing sector. So some bit of it is the educational piece on guiding them through that process. And again, Erex is not the one single bullet. There will be a combination of various energy efficiency measures, but it's, it's really important to be aware of what is out there and educating the market about innovation. So yes, social housing is the primarily market and mainly because of the scalability. So landlords would own tens of thousands of homes, mm-hmm. but also the fact that this is our primary mission to focus on not only the environmental impact, but also the social impact, the social inequalities, so tackling fuel poverty at, at the root. Which is, again, you know, a really interesting aspect of things. I can see some of the challenges that you're talking about there in terms of dealing with the local authority market, particularly. I think some of the registered providers out there are a bit more forward thinking, but having worked with local authorities, you know, throughout my career over the last 20 years and working for them directly, I understand those particular challenges in terms of that early adoption of technology. And I can understand that must be quite difficult. Do you find, I suppose local authorities would be annoyed at hearing this really, but they're still very much run the decision making at the kind of councillor level is very much still the older generation. Do you find that to be a bit of a blocker and that where you come across a different scenario, I guess, within registered providers where they don't have the same, you know, sort of sign off process through a council committee. Do you find there's a bit of a difference there? I think that more or less describes the situation. But the one thing that makes a huge difference, whether it be local authority or housing association, is whether they have in-house experts within tackling net zero and climate emergency or not. If they do have a strong in-house expertise, then they're very likely to do a very thorough research about what, what they can do and taking an action plan, which is a very important first key step. I remember working with many local authorities when they declared a climate emergency and then, you know, bringing a team of sustainability professionals to them and saying, well, what does that mean to you? And nine times out of 10 in the early days, no one really knew what it meant. They did it as, as you know, it, it sort of felt like a we better do it because everyone else is. Yes, absolutely. I think what, what also is quite apparent, even on the ESG reporting side, not only on client side, but investment point of view, because there are quite a large number of VCs and many funds that are shifting their focus towards ESG and climate tech, which is absolutely brilliant news because we need more of them to focus on climate tech. But it also comes with its challenges because some VCs or funds are not familiar with what they are actually looking for. And ESG can sometimes be an afterthought rather than in its core of their operations. But also it opens up a room for greenwashing, which we would have to be quite careful with. But equally, it's a really positive shift that we are experiencing. And it has to be 
encouraged and celebrated. But again, more education on the ESG is, is certainly required. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I've seen the same thing with, you know, working with clients exactly in that space where they're primarily an investment company that's socially investing. So they're investing in registered providers and in their retrofit programs, etc. And talking to them and working with them, it's a very different market for a lot of them to be involved in. But what's really good to see as you say is that is you know it's great to see it happening and that shift actually turning and a true passion and desire to wanting to do well in this space and wanting to understand so i think it's up to people like us to educate them i guess isn't it a podcast like this (laughs) (laughs) a podcast like this exactly it's a good point around the esg strategies as well because i find a lot more so now that the need really to get the ESG lining right is really quite strong in most organisations now. And hopefully that's something that we'll see driving the private rented sector when it comes to making this type of decision as well. What's next for you guys? What's the trajectory? Where are you heading? What does five and 10 years look like for Eric's? So I think first and foremost, what is worth mentioning the most recent milestone because everything is building up on that. So just a few weeks ago, we managed to gain recognition within the EPC, the Energy Performance Certificate. So Erex is now officially recognized within that and it's officially gives an additional roughly three to four point improvement, which is really, really meaningful. And that in itself, we are already seeing that it creates a huge uptick in demand from social housing clients. So the plans really for the next few years is to push the sales and marketing activities and being prepared for delivering on those targets and having Erex installed in tens of thousands of homes, positively contributing to this issue. So we're very much looking at this EPC recognition to become the really important inflection point in our growth. That's another great point, especially for someone like me who, you know, with my other hat on, works for an organisation that is driven by EPCs, the values within them and helping our clients get to net zero through their EPC process. So that's a conversation that we'll pick up as we go forward as well, Agnes. I think that's a really interesting point. How did you find that process going through? And because again, you're sort of dealing with the same challenge there around getting people to acknowledge and adopt a new way of thinking. Yes, the process is not, it's certainly not easy. It has been quite a bumpy road. I think from the point when we started gathering data on the evidences of our savings impact, which was an incredibly robust trial with over 6 million data points being collected and validated by independent researchers. But the actual process from that point took us nearly three years So that is quite critical that in a life of a small startup with limited resources, that's often just simply not feasible. And so, yes, there is quite a lot of regulatory barriers around it, but really happy that we finally managed to get there. And it's all going to have a huge impact commercially. That must have been a lot of loud knocking on a lot of very large doors. So I, can, I, I commend you for doing that in itself. I, you know, having worked in consultancy for years and trying to influence or even get the right conversations within those regulatory bodies is always super difficult. So, you know, that's a big pat on the back, I guess, from the industry of being able to achieve that. 
Thank you. And I think we should just also really have these discussions opened up within the industry. Just because the EPC recognition is done, it doesn't mean that any regulatory barriers are going away. There's always something else. And regulation is there for a very valid reason. It is needed. But at the same time, it also needs to be acknowledged that innovation is absolutely critical in order to reach net zero. And we cannot wait years and years for these technologies to come for bureaucratic reasons. So some push will be needed. And we were always in discussion with other technology companies as well to form a cluster whereby we can collectively drive change. That was one of the things I was going to ask you about was collaboration with other products. You know, there's an acknowledgement there that it can't be done in isolation. No one product can achieve it. So what sort of other systems or, you know, design aspects does your product contribute towards? So it's really often used in combination of various different insulation products, but also we recently have gained interoperability with smart thermostats. So acknowledging that smart ventilation control and smart heating control is more efficient if it works in tandem rather than in isolation. So that could now be controlled through a platform that we did an integration with Octopus Energy. So any Octopus customers could now use the combination of smart heating control and an Airx in tandem. But I also think that collaboration in a bit more broader level is quite useful. The fact that we are located in a large co-working space that is run by Sustainable Ventures is just opposite uh, Westminster. Mm -hmm. So really nice location. And there are 60 different sustainability startups under the same roof, which is amazing because we can bump into each other in the corridor. We can always signpost each other to the right person or share different advices, share challenges. So that level of collaboration, acknowledging that we are all in this together, we are not directly compete with each other, but rather try to help each other is, is incredibly helpful rather than doing this all alone. I've seen that all along with that collaborative piece in every aspect around this agenda, like nothing else that I've ever seen in you know my whole career, that not only business to business, do you see a deeper collaboration around the subject of sustainability and the climate crisis, but even within organisations that you see more collaboration. If you take the big corporate world, for example, you, know, you could put your building blocks of human resources, accounting, et cetera, into their parts and you know, never the train mix really as they do their roles throughout the corporate organization and it was always difficult to cross blend issues that kind of touched everybody but this really is one that does drive that yeah absolutely and then in addition there is also the business to business there's also business to academia business to government it's a great position to be so close to the parliament but at the same time we definitely need real dialogue rather than rather than just locating a few hundred meters away yeah, that must be frustrating. As I was talking about earlier, in terms of knocking on the doors, you must, you know, because you're so close, you must think, well, if I could only get in there and have a discussion with those two people who I know are in that building, you know, that must be quite difficult. Exactly. Well, hopefully, we will get there at some point. Some collective, afford collective approach with with a number of other companies as well. And I think the technology thing is really important and it is so starkly different, you know, the outlook I see, you know, myself in the industry with all the technology that's coming through. And I think I think the regulators tried to acknowledge it slightly in the consultation through the changes in the MEES regulations that are coming up that with an acknowledgement in there that you can apply for an exemption, but it's shorter in lifetime 
than your EPC. So if you get, you know, your seven year payback exemption that you can get under commercial EPCs, that is only valid for five years rather than 10 years. And I think that's very much designed at, you know, an acknowledgement that technology will move faster. So what's exempt today might not be exempt in the future. And I think that's a good way for the regulators and the government to kind of lead on this type of thing. What, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that also brings up the issue of how potentially moving away from the EPCs to more of a real life performance. But as things currently stand, EPCs will be with us for quite some time. But there is just definitely plenty of room for improvement to better reflect the technology change. And one of the key areas is having a clear and a little bit easier to access route for new technologies to get involved rather than having a three-year process. Yeah, exactly. Well, one of the things that we help our clients with a lot is not seeing the EPC as the be-all and end-all kind of, you know, because there is a stark difference between your EPC compliance, what that means from an efficiency point of view, energy saving, and all of the other associated bits that go with it. You know, it's a useful tool in terms of being able to, one, create a baseline and two, have comparable data. But we're a lot now working with clients where we're creating different models for them in you know different software or using design builder software where we're adding in different parameters and updating things that are out of date in the EPC software so it's an actual more reflective of real life and getting those real life numbers in place especially around those organizations that are really strong on their ESG credentials. Yes, it is. And then the more pioneering organizations will will certainly prefer that method over just simply EPCs. But that's a good starting point. And anything around legal requirements will all hinge on the EPC point eventually. It's managed to make some good changes in the market already in terms of driving out, you know, the very inefficient buildings. So I think, yeah, anything we just got to get the next stage right, I think, that the regulators really need to think about the in use, especially from a commercial perspective, the in, you know, the next stage is once you've got the landlord there, how do you control in use more, you know? And a lot of that, I think, if we take that outside of commercial into social housing, is stakeholder engagement around that and making sure that the community really understands the benefits of the changes in their home and they don't do things like bring in plug-in heaters and <laughs> and destroy what's been achieved just with, you know, the misconception because they're not informed enough. Yes, and at the moment, there's hardly any data available on that. So with more deployment of smart home solutions, there will be so much better understanding on real life performance and e-use. And talking of e-use is what one side is the energy usage side, but the other is indoor air quality as well, which is really important to measure. So this is where we can also add value through collecting the meaningful data there's so many data points that you could potentially, well, you must be creating a massive amount of data at the moment. Is that part of the future plan and part of the future journey to be able to use that data for good, I guess, is the right way of putting it? Yes, absolutely. And the more units are deployed, it's currently counted in, in thousands, but we are very optimistic that it will be tens of thousands quite soon. The more meaningful picture we can build up about property diagnostics data so that it could help 
social landlords to do preventative maintenance, for example, flagging up indicators of damper mode issues. It also helps reducing their disrepair claims, whereby the tenants can file legal claims against a landlord if the property is not fit for purpose. And the most important reasons are damper mode issues or severely underheated homes. So we can flag those up through real-time data. But even the combination of community and CO2 data can build a fairly good picture about just simply occupancy movement. So it could have enormous use cases in, in remote care services of opening up a lot more opportunities on, on how to use the data. So yeah, there's various different ways in which the data could be quite valuable. Yes, this is really often a discussion point with investors because often there is this old fashioned view over the fact that, oh, we're only investing in software only, and we are a bit afraid of hardware. But actually, smart sensors are absolutely critical to obtain that data so that we can build up on that. So eventually using the hardware as a Trojan horse to then gain valuable insight on the data side of things. And also climate change cannot be resolved by purely software, which is just a, just a fact. But yeah, that's after the debate. I think there is a big thing all around the industry, really, around data. There's a lot of data out there. A lot of people have access or have collected really critical data. We haven't really thought about how to pull together and use, which is something as a business we're looking at in very closely to see because we collect so much data each year. You know, then we're looking at how we can trend and, and create some level of intelligence to guide social landlords and you know other people around exactly what solutions are going to work long term and short term you know yeah and then we just need something that is easy to interpret and yeah it's, it's straightforward what what the actions are coming from that sort of data rather than looking at millions of different dashboards Indeed, yes, over dashboarded. So before we wrap up, a couple of quick questions then. I'm sure our listeners will be very interested to know what the average install cost is. Yes, it is a few hundred pounds per home. It varies roughly about 500-ish. So typically an average property would have five units and one single home hub that is connected to that. So based on the savings figures, that the payback is about one or two years, basically. Excellent. Really good. So I'll ask you the final question then. If you had the opportunity to have lunch with Boris Johnson tomorrow and you could come away, you know, confident that you'd influenced him, what would you be trying to influence? That's a really good question. Uh, I actually happen to have met the previous prime minister <laughs> within the Downing State, although although there was another 200 people in the room as well. So we didn't quite have lunch together. But if I were to do that, <laughs> close enough, uh, still quite a nice experience. But if I were to do that, I would certainly point out how critical innovation it is in achieving net zero. And therefore, any barrier that can be removed is just really important to tackle and it's not only about the lack of finance but but it's, it's those regulatory barriers that we previously touched up on so there are a lot of great products out there that's normally not an issue technology typically exists there's obviously more need for that but but the main issue and the main barrier is the market adaptation that is incredibly hard due to these barriers so that will be the key message that innovation is needed for net zero Brilliant. That's really great. Finally, then, how do people find you, Agnes? Look at our website at www.airx.tech and get in touch with us. Excellent. Great stuff. Well, thank you very much for joining us. 
Thank you, Paul. It was really great to chat to you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll see you again next time on Carbon Times. Carbon Times.